Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Good evening, everyone. Um, it's lovely to be with you um, at the Bangor Worldwide. I want to thank the committee uh, very much indeed for the opportunity and the privilege of being able uh, to speak to you this evening. Um, I, I wonder, does it, does it matter where we send our workers, our missionaries? Does it, does it matter? Can we send them anywhere in the world? Or should there be a strategy when it comes to reaching the world and sending people um, out from our churches. I, I think it does matter, and I think when we think about the life of Paul, um, our uh, great missionary, our great example in missionary work, he said these words in Romans 15, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on someone else's foundation. And that, that was Paul's aim, ambition, not only his aim and ambition, but his, his practice. That's how missionary work began with Paul. He, he would set off from somewhere like Jerusalem. He would travel somewhere where the church wasn't, where there was no foundation, where people didn't know about the living Savior. He would spend time there. He would preach the gospel. He would enter the synagogues and share the good news with people. By the grace, kindness, and mercy of God, people listened. Their lives were transformed. Little churches were formed. He spent time teaching them, training them, setting aside elders. The elders organized the people. They did evangelism from the city into their local communities. And then Paul kind of packed up his little tent, and he moved to where the church wasn't, to where people had never heard of the living Savior. He arrived there. He spent some time. He preached the gospel. People are converted. A church is formed. They set aside elders. He rolls up his tent, and he, he keeps moving. He wants to go where people have never heard the name of Jesus. He wants to go where no man has gone before, Star Trek. That's what he wants to do. That's his goal. That's his ambition. And that ought to be the ambition of the church today, not just to send workers somewhere in the world, but to strategically think where in the world, where are their communities and cultures and people groups and countries and languages that are still waiting for opportunities to hear about Jesus. Where are there people living in villages and mountains and valleys around our world who might live their whole life and never once hear the name of Jesus? It ought to be our goal, our passion, our ambition, like Paul, to make sure those communities are reached with the good news. And I, I hope and pray that that's what Asia Link is about. Our, our motto is for the unreached people of Asia. Our goal, our ambition is to find those communities, those people groups, those cultures, those languages that have no churches, no evangelists, no Bibles, no Christian workers, and to try and send Asian evangelists to reach them and to see churches established 
and uh, evangelism then take place from those local churches. And the, the challenge for us is the, is the continent of Asia. If, if, the, if the whole world was condensed into a hundred people, the challenge of Asia is this, that um, around about 11 of them would be Europeans. Sorry, my clicker's gone again on me. 11 of them would be Europeans. 15 of them would be Africans. Nine of them would be South Americans. Five of them would be North Americans. And 60 of them would be Asians. And that, that's the challenge of working in a continent like Asia. There are, there are so many people, huge numbers of people that live in the continent of Asia. And that brings a challenge in itself. Not, not only huge numbers of people that are living in Asia, but huge numbers of unbelievers that live in Asia. Millions, billions, tens of thousands of people right across the continent who are un- unbelievers. There is nowhere Nowhere quite like Asia. And then when we think of those that are unreached in our world, around about 3 billion people unreached, many more unconverted, but 3 billion people who are not just lost, but lost with no one to tell them how they can be found. 3 billion in our world roughly remain unreached. Three quarters of them live in the continent of Asia. So it brings with it a huge challenge And as an organization, I suppose we have three pillars, three things that we're involved in, three things that we're trying to do. We're involved, first of all, in putting Bibles into the hands of those Asian Christians who can't get a hold of them due to all kinds of restrictions of communism, Hinduism, um, Islam, whatever it might be. We're trying to put Bibles into the hands of people. Sometimes we print them inside countries and we can deliver them. Sometimes we look for teams who'll come with us and carry them into closed countries. Secondly, our second pillar is we're involved in sending Asian evangelists. It's not the only way of reaching the world, but we believe that Asian people reaching Asian people is a good model. Our workers in China are Chinese. Our workers in Nepal are Nepali. Our workers in Bhutan are Bhutanese. And they know the culture They live there 52 weeks in a year, and uh, we're involved in uh, sending and training those Asian evangelists. And then we're involved, thirdly, in the training of church leaders and making sure that those churches are sound and biblical and uh, able to uh, develop and teach their own people. AsiaLink works from uh, Iraq over in the west through to North Korea and from the uh, Mongolia in the north to the, uh, to the Maldive Islands in the south. This is our kind of mission field that we've been involved in, celebrating now our 20th year uh, serving the Lord here uh, across in Asia. And as I mentioned this morning, I, I just want to talk about one of the, one of the countries that we're involved in, uh, one of the ministries, one of the challenging parts of the world that we're involved in, and that is the Maldive Islands. Now, when you think about the Maldive Islands Uh, You maybe uh, have a perception in your head about what it's like. You're maybe thinking of this famous island paradise, one of the most beautiful places in the world to spend a holiday, the number one honeymoon destination in the world, sand, sea, and sun. And maybe that is your perception of the Maldive Islands. For most Western people, that is their perception of what the Maldives Islands are like. Um, white sands, 
uh, palm trees swaying in the wind, a blue crystal clear sea, villas lying over coral reefs, um, the, the kind of perfect holiday destination, an irresistible holiday paradise. That's how many people will view the Maldive Islands. But I want you to take those pictures, those ideas, and I want you to shelve them far into the back of your mind because that is not what the Maldivian people are facing. That is not what the Maldive Islands are like for Maldivian people and far from it. And for just the remaining moments of our, of our evening, to give you a bit of a picture about the reality of what it's like to live and serve on the Maldive Islands. The Maldives are located on the Indian, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, just off the coast of India and Sri Lanka. It's a, a group of, of, of many islands. Uh, from the North Island to the South I Island, there's about 600 miles that separates them. The word Maldives means garland of islands, and it's a, a nice description of the shape of the Maldives. It's like a garland around your neck. It's about this shape. And dotted in, this, in the middle of all of these islands, of course, are these atolls, 26 natural atolls. An atoll is a, a kind of a formation, a coral formation, a circular formation of, of corals. Uh, formed in the sea. And there are 26 of these atolls that make up the Maldive Islands. On the screen, you can see two of them. The Maldives is really a string of sandbars and coral reefs with little islands that jut up from underneath the sea. They are a spectacular sight for anyone who would visit. There are 1,000 190 islands that make up the Maldives. There used to be 1,192 islands, but two of them were recently snatched, stolen violently from the Maldivian people by the great enemy of the Maldives, the enemy of the Maldivian people being the sea. Now, we hear a lot today about rising sea levels, global warming, melting ice caps, and for us here in Bangor, or where I'm from in Ballyclare, if the sea level rose by a few inches or a foot or so, it might not make much difference to us. But for the people in the Maldives, they're living right at the very edge of the challenge of that. If I, if I told you that the highest mountain in the Maldives was just under eight feet then you get a little bit of an idea of the challenge of the sea. Most Maldivian people are living this much above sea level. So I want you to remember that tomorrow when you're spraying the links and the hairspray and whatever else it is we're told that's destroying our ozone and increasing our sea levels. The Maldivian people face great challenges on these islands. 1,190 islands. Some of them are small, tiny little islands with just no one living on them. Some of them are larger islands with many people living on them. Those islands are accessible either by seaplane, they're accessible by boat, or they're accessible by small, tiny little planes that will land on these islands, hopefully before they disappear into the sea. Um, it was 
an opportunity I have to fly on this little plane a number of months ago. And I'm sure some of you have been on planes like this before. You arrive at an airport, you have a a small plane, you set your luggage on the scales. This is the first time I've ever been anywhere where not only did my luggage go on the scales, but I'm told to get onto the scales as well. And uh, this photograph will hopefully be a bit too blurred to see what weight I am. But the scales are there to ensure that everyone is carefully weighed so that this little plane will land safely on a very small, narrow airstrip before disappearing into the sea. But when the plane takes off, you have the view that is spectacular down below out the window. Dozens, hundreds of tiny little islands dropped into the blue, crystal clear sea of the Indian Ocean. These islands where people are living on, these smaller islands, consist of two things, sand and then this rich vegetation and very little else. I couldn't talk to you for very long about many of these islands. They're just sand and vegetation and nothing much else. Beautiful, stunning, white, sandy beaches, incredible places to visit. But then this vegetation just palm trees and very little else. The local people that live there, some of them will have electricity, others won't. And they live in very simple houses, very few roads, just compacted sand makes up the roads. And they live in these simple rectangular houses. There are no football grounds, there are no cinemas, there's no shopping centers, there's nothing on these islands but sand, palm trees, and concrete block houses. Some of the islands are different. The capital city, Maui, is different to all the other islands. This is the gateway, the main city, the main island on the Maldives. And Maui is like a concrete jungle. About a third of all Maldivians live on the island of Maui. And when you look down on it from up above, you just get a picture how every inch is used on these islands with buildings. I think this little video will hopefully give you a little aerial shot of some of those islands. It's often described as being like Manhattan in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Every inch is taken up by buildings rising high up into the sky. Mali is one of the most densely populated capital cities per square kilometer in the world. Two square miles of concrete jungle. That's what makes up the Maldive Islands, makes makes up uh, the the island of Mali. If you can uh, imagine that almost every space is taken up, you can't build to the north of the island because you're in the sea, to the south of the island, to the east, to the west. As the little song goes, the only way is up. And uh, so you have these high-rise apartments, and these apartments are full, jam-packed, crammed like sardines in a tin, full of people. The best jobs, the best universities, the best schools are here. So young people and people from all over the different islands want to come to Mali uh, to spend, to study, and to work here. Sometimes these buildings are so close together. If you walk around the city of Mali, you'll see these narrow, pokey, tiny little streets because the buildings are so close together. 
In fact, where we were staying in our little guest house, I could open the window and reach out across the street and shake hands with the neighbor across the street. The neighbors, the, 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 the lanes are so tightly packed together. Narrow, pokey, dark little alleyways, accessible by tens of thousands of little motorbikes that weave their way around the city. Now, what I want to do is just very briefly tell you about four things that you will see in Mali and in the Maldives and four things that you won't see. The first thing that you'll see is it's a place of political unrest. If you think the Maldives is an island paradise where the government are doing all their business on the beach, sipping pina coladas, think again. This is a country in turmoil. The president or former president was a deeply unpopular man. He had sold off through corruption a number of islands to to private people, pocketed the money, and no one knew where all the finances had gone. The opposition leader, he speaks out against the government and against the corruption. And just a couple of days before we arrive, the president of the country puts the opposition leader into prison. When we arrive, there is political unrest. There is uproar. People want the opposition leader set free. The high court judges in the land all meet, and they decide that the president is wrong, and he must set the opposition leader free. The president responds by putting all the high court judges into prison. There's turmoil. There's revolution in the air. People are meeting on the streets. Tear gas is thrown. The police are called. A curfew is called. An attempted coup takes place. And all of this in order to try and bring a sense of change inside the country. The coup is quashed. The rebellion is held back. And the Maldivian government continue to rule in their own way. This is a place of political turmoil. Secondly, the second thing that you'll see in the Maldives is this, it's full of rubbish. Now, if you spent five or six thousand pounds on a beautiful hotel in some great resort, trust me, they'll have played some wee man or some wee woman to scar the beach and pick up the rubbish. But Mali is full of plastic bottles and rubbish. Few bins can be found, and the rubbish ends up in the sea and then is washed up on the beach. It's a place full of horrible plastic bottles. The third thing, if you walk around these narrow little streets in Mali that you'll see, is you'll see little tea rooms, hundreds of tea rooms. And when you look closely at these tea rooms, they're full of people, full of men putting the world right. There are no women drinking tea in the tea rooms of Mali. If a woman was seen to come into a room like this or a tea room like this and begin to drink tea along with the men, it would be frowned on terribly. The tea rooms are full of men drinking tea, sorting the world. Political unrest, rubbish in the streets, tea rooms. Fourthly, the Maldives is full of men with beautiful hair. Now, it's just, it's just um, my own personal opinion that hair is overrated. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, there may be one or two other men that might agree with me on that. Hair is overrated, but not for Moldavian men. They love their hair. And as well as tea rooms, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of hairdressing salons for men. I didn't see any for women, but hundreds, dozens of them, sorry, dozens anyway, for men. And when you walk around the streets of Mali, you see these well-groomed, hairy men with great beards that have been trimmed and oiled and cared for uh, for many, many years. And whenever I was in the Maldives, away from all the restrictions of home. I don't know where you've ever wanted to do this. I, I just wanted to go into one of those hairdressing salons and just say, just do whatever you can. Just go mad. Just, no, nobody's here to restrict me. Just go mad. And this is me getting my hair cut in 15 minutes later. This is what I <laughs> end up. So... Political unrest, rubbish, tea rooms, and gorgeous hair. Now, here's four things that you won't find in the Maldives. You won't find any dogs. 1,190 islands, and there's not a dog to be seen. Dogs are banned, not allowed, forbidden. And there are no dogs, lots of cats, but there are no dogs in the Maldives. Secondly, there is no alcohol on the Maldive Islands. Now, just to get things right, the government are hypocritical enough to allow on the big resorts for people to come and stay in them all the alcohol that you can want. But on the island of Mali, the capital city, and on all the other islands, alcohol is banned. There's no alcohol. Thirdly, what about the church? We were talking this morning about Bangor with 60,000 plus people, and I give up when I got to the, the number 50 of churches. What about the Maldive Islands? 1,190 islands. I wonder how many churches there are among Maldivian people living on the islands. You know what the answer is, as I said this morning? Zero. None. Not one Christian church. In fact, our, our, our contacts on the island would say that they hardly could really put their finger on one genuine conversion to Christ among Maldivian people. Think about that. All those islands, all those people. Maybe not one genuine conversion. One or two who've made a profession of faith, but it seems maybe for some of them it's in opposition to Islam, a kind of a, a rebellion against Islam, and they've made some kind of but genuine repentance and faith in Christ, struggling to find one follower of Jesus. Fourthly, what about what about the Bible? Surely in, in every country in the world, in the main language of every country in the world, there must be, after 2,000 years, a copy of God's Word in the main language of every country in the world. As far as I know, there is, except for one or two, one of them being the Maldive Islands. The Maldives are still waiting, after 2,000 years, for a copy of the Bible in their own language. There are little portions of it, Proverbs, Psalms, portions of the New Testament, 
but they're still waiting for a copy of the Bible. Think about all the Christian websites in the English language that there are today. Think of all the Christian websites there are in the world today in the Christian language. In the Maldivian language, there is one Maldivian Christian website, and it's blocked by the government. And I don't know how you, how you feel or what goes on in your head when you think about something like that, that the challenge of a, a place where the Bible is banned. I, I wonder how or what you feel when you think about a country where there is no, no church, no gathered group of Maldivians anywhere in the world, as far as we know. Very few of any followers of Jesus, maybe enough to count on your hand right around the world. I wonder, does that challenge you about the great and needy spots of the world like this? The reason why there are no dogs, no women in the tea rooms, no alcohol is because this is one of the great strongholds of Islam in the world. This is an Islamic country where only Islam is tolerated, where only mosques are allowed, where every Maldivian citizen is claimed to be a follower of Islam. And wherever you go on every island, there will be a mosque or mosques calling people and devoted to the following of Islam. This, this, this challenge of, of, a, of a lack of, of, of gospel work on the islands that has been going on for so, for so many years is not just a recent thing. Uh, the, the emperor of, of India, 200 years before Jesus was born, came to the Maldive Islands, and he, he, brought, uh, he brought Buddhism to the Maldivian people, and they remained Buddhist from a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, right up until the 11th century. The Maldivian people were Buddhists. We have no record of any Christian activity during the first 11 or 12 centuries. Nothing. And then in 1153, Islamic travelers come onto the islands, and they manage to convert the leaders and all of the government and all of the people to Islam. From 1153 until this present day, the Maldivian people have been Islamic. Again, we have almost no record of any significant input of Christianity in 2,000 years for 2,000 years, the Maldivian people have been living in darkness. I'm not sure if there's a place quite like it in the world. This beautiful island paradise is a place where the gospel has managed to miss or to be pushed out for 2,000 years. Now, what would a place look like that kept Jesus out for 2,000 years? Well, the answer to that is a place riddled with social problems. Young people have found alcohol, and worse, found heroin and cocaine. The Maldivian people have the highest divorce rate of anybody else in the world. But of course, most heartbreaking for us all ought to be not the social conditions of the Maldivian people, but that these people have been living in darkness for so long, for too long. Communities and people like this are living and growing up and never hearing about the Lord Jesus. This lady here, Nizza, lives on a tiny little island with a mosque just around the corner from her. She's a Muslim. Her mother was a Muslim. Her grandmother was a Muslim. Her great-grandmother was a Muslim. 
And as far as we know, in 2,000 years of Christianity, there has not been a gospel witness in her island ever. Those things ought to disturb us. They ought to leave us feeling uncomfortable, unhappy, unsatisfied. We ought to long, like, like Paul, the great missionary, to reach people to go where the church has never been planted before. And right across the Maldive Islands, there are people like that. We may be tempted to conclude that this is a hopeless situation, a hopeless place. 2,000 years of darkness. But it is not a hopeless situation for one reason, and that one reason is our God is king. Our God is king. Our God is sovereign over all the earth. As we read this morning, He sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants of the islands, excuse the change of word, are like grasshoppers. Our God is able to bring governments and presidents down and change governments. Our God is able to make dry bones live. Our God is able to bring hope and the gospel to the darkness of the Maldive Islands. And it's our responsibility to cry out to Him and to seek Him, to ask and move and come in His power and in His mercy upon the Maldivian Islands. What can you and I do? Well, there are a few things that we can do. First of all, we can go. We can go. God is looking for people who'll go. And maybe this evening you could go or set out on a course that would take you to a place like this, that God might challenge you with the same ambition as Paul to go where no man has gone before, that you could go and take the gospel to the Maldivian people. And as well as going, we can pray praying great prayers. God, move by your Spirit among the Maldivian people. Cause these people to turn to the great Creator God. Show them of their need of salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn their cold hearts, their dead hearts. Bring dry bones to life. Secondly, you can pray for, for the work that's being done among Maldivian sailors. Many Moldavian men are in shipping boats sailing around the world. Pray for port workers in Belfast, in Cork, in Vancouver, in South Africa, wherever their vessels are docked, and for the many amazing opportunities that port workers can have to reach Moldavian sailors with the good news. Pray for the Bible to be completed. As you sit tonight with a copy of God's Word in your own language, Will you remember the Maldivian people still waiting for God's Word after all these years? Pray for a faithful team who are trying to get the Bible translated and completed, and then out on audio and in video and in downloadable and CDs and whatever they can do to get the Bible into the hands of people. And if you can't go, maybe you could help organizations like ourselves 
to send others in your place. We're involved in sending Sri Lankan missionaries, Sri Lankans who can come into the country, work in restaurants and hotels and the tourist industry, and as Christians, be salt and light and share the gospel with their Maldivian workmates and friends. The Maldives, this island paradise, dropped into the middle of the Indian Ocean. If you'd like to know more or pray more about our work or the work that Keith was mentioning, we'll be over in the halls afterwards. I'd love to give you a little bookmark that might encourage you to bring this great needy nation to God in prayer. You can pick that up, sign up for a magazine or whatever else you would like to do. We'll be over in the hall and can chat to you later. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And thank you for the invitation to Bangor Worldwide. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.